Welcome to the More Equity Podcast by Harlem Capital. Harlem Capital is an early stage, diversity-focused venture capital fund based in New York. We're on a mission to invest in 1,000 diverse entrepreneurs over the next 20 years. Thank you for following our journey and now on to the podcast. Hi, everyone. This is your host, Raquel Scott, a summer VC intern with Harlem Capital. In this season, I'll be speaking to some of the individuals who are introducing new models and structures into venture capital to learn how they came up with and executed their ideas. Since we all must play a part in creating the future we want to live in, I hope this series also inspires you to identify the game-changing ideas you have and gain the confidence to successfully execute them. Those are just businesses that may not be built to be a unicorn. It doesn't mean that they're bad businesses. And so what we wanted to do was make sure that if there's still value in 40% of those, that's value that we should take advantage of. And along the way, not only can we take advantage of it financially, but for the black community, if we can create wins by changing the definition of success, that means a lot for the black community. In today's episode of the More Equity Podcast, I'm speaking with Barry Gibbons, a co-founder and managing partner at Co-op Capital and a passionate supporter of Black founders and Black communities. In this episode, Barry shares his journey from entrepreneurship into venture capital and shares lessons that he learned along the way, including the importance of defining success in a way that works for Black entrepreneurs and gaining confidence to overcome imposter syndrome. Hi, Barry. It is so great to have you here today on the Harlem Capital More Equity podcast for our Game Changers series. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So just for the listeners who may not know who you are, I'm just going to give a quick bio. So Barry Givens is a co-founder of Club Capital, where he, Jewel Burke Solomon, and Justin Dawkins invest in Black founders to turn their genius into generational wealth. In May 2021, Collab Capital announced that they successfully raised a $50 million fund to invest in Black founders with notable backers such as Apple, Goldman Sachs, and Google. He is a successful entrepreneur and in 2012 founded a hardware technology company called Monsieur, which successfully raised over $4 million in funding and grew to a successful exit in 2017. So Barry, you were a design engineer, a product manager, a successful entrepreneur, and now one of the most prominent VCs in the Atlanta tech ecosystem. So thank you so much for being here today. And I really can't wait to hear more about how you turned your game-changing idea for Collab Capital into a reality. Man, that was a heck of an intro. Appreciate that. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that you think I did a good job, but I'm sure there's much more to Barry Givens than the brief bio that I was able to provide. So can you just give the listeners, you know, some context on what really shaped you into who you are today, where you grew up, what jobs you had, and who are you outside of your resume, outside of your LinkedIn, Twitter? Who is Barry Givens? Yeah, awesome, awesome. So I was actually born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but I moved to Atlanta or right outside of Atlanta in Stone Mountain when I was very young. So I was around nine years old. And so I'm more Atlanta than I am Milwaukee. I know more about Atlanta 
than I do Milwaukee. But through that journey, I mentioned that because one of the things that really shaped who I am today was that transition to Atlanta. It was the first time I had seen, I won't even call it black wealth, but the first time I had really seen like neighborhoods of black people doing well. And when you move to a city like Atlanta, you know, my dentist was black, my doctor was black, my mayor was black, right? Like everybody around that was successful was black. And it, it really, as a kid, it really opens you up to, you know, as a young black kid, that anything is possible, right? There are not limitations on what it is that you can do, what you could achieve. You know, we're sitting in the city of Martin Luther King and John Lewis and all these other figures. It's just really powerful. And that really jump-started, you know, the mindset that I have today. And so growing up, you know, I worked a lot. I worked full-time throughout high school, my junior, senior year. I always had a job. I've never not worked. I graduated high school and went to Georgia Tech and got an engineering degree, a BS in mechanical engineering. Um, I worked every other semester while I was in college. And so I was always working, always working. And so through college, I started my first company with my two roommates, uh, one of my friends, Omari and, and Mario. Omari had this great idea and I jumped on board with them. And it was my first foray into, you know, that money is just an idea. That was a blog we started after we launched our company that said, if you have something cool that people will buy, you can start a business and live off of it. And that was really where I got to understand the scale of, of money and wealth. And like, if you do something cool, that's innovative, that you can, you can make a lot of money. And in turn, with kind of my background from being raised by two parents that were always community focused and community driven, that not only could you make a lot of money, but you could help a lot of people. And so I took that narrative and all of that, all those ideas and that work ethic, and I started starting businesses. And so I had the one in college that was, you know, somewhat successful for being a 21 year old in college. And then I started my first tech startup right after college, after I quit my first corporate job that failed miserably, never really got off the ground, honestly. And then I went back to corporate as a product manager and used that money in corporate to fund my last company, Masseur where I grew the company to 17 employees, um, a little over a million dollars in revenue, and ended up um, successfully licensing out my IP to a uh, company out in Silicon Valley. And it was during that journey with Masir where I really got introduced to venture capital for the first time. And it, it really want, made me want to become the investor that I wish that I had had during my journey. And yeah, so that's how we, uh, that's how we ended up here. So a couple of things about your background really stand out to me in terms of setting the foundation for who you are today. So as you mentioned, you, through growing up in Atlanta, were exposed to Black success and Black wealth in a way that was really transformative for your mindset and what you thought you were capable of. And something that resonates with me as well is that you had two parents who were really community focused and had a drive to help others. So it definitely shows how your background impacted your journey as an entrepreneur and now as an investor in Atlanta. So although you did go on to having a successful startup, your first attempt at being an entrepreneur, you know, you didn't really get off the ground. So I would love to hear about your experience as an entrepreneur and what both of those outcomes taught you not only about being a founder, but now about being an investor. One of the main things it taught me um, is that investors and founders can very quickly get off of the same page. 
you have these big ambitions and these big goals, but the second that you're not on a unicorn trajectory, you can come misaligned very fast with your investors if you don't have the right investors. And when you're learning things on the fly, it's very imperative that you once surround yourself with people that, that aren't doing it on the fly, that people that have that experience. And so bringing mentors into your life and you know, even just peers that are maybe a couple years in front of you that maybe went through what you're going through now a couple years before that can really help you navigate those choppy waters because it's hard learning how to be a CFO on the fly, learning how to be a, a marketer on the fly because early on, you don't have the capital to really invest in the people to fill these roles. I thought I could learn everything on my own and I made a lot of mistakes. And now I know that I, I keep mentors and I keep people behind me that can help not just as a founder, not just as an investor, but really everything that I do in my life now, bring people around that have done it before, particularly people that have done it in the recent years, right? Because they're the, they're the best uh, tool that you can have to help you because their knowledge is fresh. But it was really that experience as it, as it uh, pertains to venture capital and investing. It was really my experience, one of, of raising the money that I raised and having the investors that I had that really opened my eyes up to understanding the type of investor that I wanted, that I maybe did not have, but also understanding the environment of going out and raising money and all the gaps and the struggles that as a black founder that at the time was pretty prominent. Like I, I was going through that phase where I was, you know, spread entrepreneur magazine. I was on CNN. Like I was, you know, all the cool stuff that they tell you you're supposed to do. I had the customers, I had the revenue. I had the team background and it just really shined a light that as black founders and minority founders, you know, there's a different goalpost. And so all of these things through my journey that I learned along the way really kind of shaped, you know, what I'm doing now at Collab Capital. What was your journey like from entrepreneurship into venture capital? When did you first start thinking about becoming an investor and who kind of inspired that mindset shift for you? Oh man, that's another good one. My trip into my trip into venture was probably like no other. I know most times people like want to be investors. I had had my experiences with investors made me actually not want to be an investor. Mm. What I wanted to do was create something that could be better than venture capital that could get money to founders, but in a way that was founder friendly but also in a way that had focused on black investors as well, because I thought that's one of the things that was missing is that if many of these people that we're pitching to don't care about our story, don't understand that the distance that we traveled to get here, they don't understand many of the industries that we're selling into. And so it was like, we just need more black people that can write checks into the, these innovative young founders. And so I was out trying to build a product that could fill this gap and solve this problem for this double-sided market. And along that journey, um, I created what I thought was a really cool model that was not venture capital, but it was more like community-driven, you know, pulling money together from people that had, you know, really cool backgrounds that could actually help grow the companies, not just with capital, but also with their networks. And um, I, I remember calling Jewel, and some other people here in Atlanta, like, hey, let's build this thing. Like, let's, we should get capital to founders. And you fast forward a couple of years, Jewel comes on, um, Justin comes on. And we hit this point in that journey 
or it's like, you know what, people really aren't ready for a new model like this, but what if we could, you know, kind of meet people in the middle, like people understand, respect, and are comfortable with venture capital. And so what if we could mix this really cool model that we're building with venture capital? And so that's when we kind of set out and said, we're going to go raise a fund and we're going to prove to people that this new model will be better for not just early stage black entrepreneurs, but this is a model that can work for early stage entrepreneurs all across the globe. And so, yeah, that that's really was the my entrance into saying I'm going to be an investor. It was kind of on accident um, while chasing another dream. It's really interesting how you kind of brought that mindset that a lot of investors tell founders to have, which is find that white space, right? So where are there gaps in the market? And finding that white space that existed for a lot of minority entrepreneurs, you guys implemented a new structure called a space agreement. So I think it would be great if you could give a little background on how that is coming into play and the connection between this new structure that you guys have and all of the you know, inspiration about why you got into this in the first place and how your space agreement is having a positive impact on diverse founders. Yeah, definitely. So our space agreement, for those that may not have heard of it, it stands for a shared profit agreement with a collaborative endorsement. And all of that will make sense in a couple of sentences here. (laughs) But first and foremost, this is one of the areas where I like to, to boast a little bit. Pretty much everybody that has touched this thing has been Black. And we're introducing a new investment vehicle to the world. Like, that's not a thing that happens every day. And the fact that we're able to do this, I mean, that was just a huge milestone for us to have something that hopefully everyone will be using here pretty soon, not just Collab Capital. So that's just kind of a, a quick plug uh, for, for my team and my, my law office, Townsend and Lockett, just fantastic work that, that was put in to get this thing out of the door and now being used in the real world. But the, the three goals for having this new model were really pretty basic things, right? It was how do we get more Black people involved in venture capital on the money side as well as the advisory kind of helping the companies grow role how do we get more black founders to success right now you know venture capital is basically binary in order for my venture capital fund math to work for my lps i have to go unicorn hunting because that's really the only way for me to give my lps the return and so really it's binary it's either you're a unicorn or you're not And that's really how we define success in this industry, unfortunately. And so how can we open up other paths for success for Black founders? And then the third thing was, how do we unlock, if as a Black community, we may not have a bunch of billion-dollar funds roaming around or enough people to go create a bunch of billion-dollar funds, but what we do have that we can lean into is our culture and our, our grasp on, you know, the pulse of of culture and how things change in this, in the globe, not just our country. And so we have these things in our community, but how do we actually harness those into something that creates value monetarily for the innovation economy? And so we looked at these three things and what we ended up with was the space agreement. And even the way we structured our fundraise, we structured it in a way to solve some of these problems. You know, one of the things we did was we allowed, you know, individuals to come in at $100,000 minimum. 
And, you know, for a $50 million fund, that's kind of unheard of. That's a very small check. But we wanted to make sure that we could introduce people into large funds like this that may not be able to write a million dollar check. The space agreement on its face looks just like a safe agreement. So it's a convertible document that companies come in, we make an investment. And if the company goes on and raises another round, we convert over just like any other investor. And so what happens is for companies in our portfolio that we've invested in through the space agreement, if they are on the unicorn route, which many a times in, in an early stage fund, typically only even in that first stage from like C to series A, only about 30% of the companies in that seed fund will actually go on to raise series A. So even before the companies are really out of the gate, about 70% of them are knocked off the horse. Those are just businesses that may not be built to be a unicorn. It doesn't mean that they're bad businesses. And so what we wanted to do was make sure that if there's still value in 40% of those, that's value that we should take advantage of. And along the way, not only can we take advantage of it financially, but for the Black community, if we can create wins by changing the definition of success, that means a lot for the Black community. And so an example is, you know, my partner, Jewel, her company, Park Pick, which, you know, by Silicon Valley standard, she wasn't a unicorn. She sold her company to Amazon. But through that sale, she created multiple Black millionaires because her entire team was Black. And so we need more of those size wins where we're creating millionaires that have the mindset to go back into the community to create pathways for more Black millionaires. And so that's what's so important about living in that middle tier and opening that up because we need those wins in our community because those wins end up being our angel network. That ends up being our next community builders, our next investors, And so that is the meat of the model and the community effort that we want to put forward. But then financially for our LPs, what happens now is that we still have the same opportunity as every other fund with the 30% of companies that go on and raise a series A and hopefully a series B. And we'll have that, you know, 5% of the fund that creates all the returns for our LPs we still have that exact same opportunity and model built into the space agreement, but we've added another level that we're able to actually recoup returns from our portfolio. So we have this tool that no other investor currently has. And so our goal is that we will be able to outdo all of our competitors from a returns perspective because of this shared profit agreement that we have with the companies that don't go on to convert um, into direct equity. This is where we get into this collaborative endorsement part of the space agreement. So with every investment that we make, we do our diligence, we find out where the gaps are in that business. We find out what are the needs to really help this company scale to go on a market. And then we go find the person that this company probably could not afford to hire. But if we can find a way to financially incentivize them, they can be a huge boost to the growth of this company. And so that's where the collaborative endorsement agreement comes in. And so those are the two big things that are part of our agreement that are really allowing our companies to scale fast, but also to create these great returns. Something that I just want to highlight is the fact that there are structures in VC that 
clearly were not working for certain entrepreneurs and certain founders. And that the goalposts have been defined without taking into consideration what success looks like for diverse founders as well. So it's incredible for me to hear that Collab Capital is coming up with the structures that are based on our version of success and finding ways to really celebrate and support different versions of success and expanding VC from just being this binary outcome of either you're a unicorn or you're not. But like you said, in order to do that, you guys really had to come up with an entirely new investment vehicle. So you mentioned having an all black law firm working with you on this. Who else was around the table actually helping you guys execute this and turning this from an idea that you had amongst yourself and your co-founders and really creating this new investment vehicle? Here in Atlanta, there wasn't really like a, you know, a well-built foundation or ecosystem back in 2011, 2012. Um, when there was kind of this really big cohort of of Black entrepreneurs that were coming on the scene. Um, so you had people like myself, Jewel, Justin, Ryan from The Gathering Spot, Candice from Mayavana, and then a couple of other like Black entrepreneurs that were kind of coming on. And because there wasn't an ecosystem, we really leaned on each other. And we kind of just built alongside each other, right? We became like a family. And we all kind of came together around that time, like 2017. And we would meet at the gathering spot and just discuss all the disparities and the gaps and a lot of the stuff that we just discussed. And so many of these tables in the really early stages, you know, Candace was there and Ryan was there and these, these other founders that had also had different journeys, but very similar journeys to the one I just described that I had. But all of it had kind of that same outcome that capital was the gap for Black entrepreneurs and right now we were spending too much time and not we as in our team, but we as a community, we're spending too much time trying to beg white investors to make a change. And the consensus was we have to build our own table and we have to be very intentional about this table that we build. And that's one of the reasons why we are so upfront about only investing in black people. That's like very deeply rooted into the, the why of what we're doing. We were intentional about saying that and it came from some of those early meetings that we were having sitting around the table. So that was kind of the early stages. And then we finally got ready to like launch something um, and go forward. And so me, Justin, and Jewel all had kind of exited and, and finished up around the same time. And so that's kind of how we ended up being the three to really move forward with the what you now see as Collab Capital. And so big kudos to them for being sounding boards, for you know giving us ideas you know, listening to our thoughts when we had them. And then as we move to that next stage of actually building something, you know, Chris Gilmore, who is one of the attorneys at Townsend and Lockett and also just a good friend, you know, when we had this idea of building a new vehicle, you know, you call your lawyer friend and he had just left one of the top business law firms here in Atlanta, Morris Manning, and joined an all black, like top to bottom, all black law firm here in Atlanta that was a couple of years old as their, as their newest attorney leading their business practice. So it was just kind of like perfect timing from, you know, when we were building, we were building and Chris jumped in head first and was like, and just started writing with us and, and putting, taking our ideas and turning them into legal terms and making sure that it all made sense. So, 
really having that legal mind in those brainstorming sessions and in the building of the model. I mean, this is just as much his model as it is ours. Mm. Um, so kudos to, to Chris and, and the team at Townsend Lockett. So after we did all this work with Chris, the next stage was like starting to put it in front of potential LPs. And so one of the first people we put it in front of was Malcolm Robinson, um, who's a prominent venture capitalist and a black investor up in New York. And that was the first time we got it completely ripped to shreds. <laughs> Whoa, y'all are doing what? Doing it how? And it was, you know, I, I love that type of feedback as a founder. Mm-hmm. He came in and kind of brought that investor, like that old school venture capitalist investor, you know, brought that to us, that vibe. And that really helped us even go in and, you know, change the model even more, make sure he made us think about things that we had not really thought of things that may come up, you know, three investments after our initial term sheet, you know, what does the series A investor think two years down the line? How does it affect them? And how's it going to affect this founder's ability to raise money? So all of these things that he was kind of looking around corners for us. So that was awesome. And then last, when we finally got ready, you know, one of the other people that we talked to early was Kaufman. And so Kaufman was the first institutional investor to actually look at our model and hear our pitch and that's when things got really real and so we worked with Kaufman for like six to eight months before they actually wrote a check and they were sending it to their lawyers so they were like redlining stuff sending it back to us um, and really just helping us put those final touches Um, when you think about you know how does how do the what are the tax implications you know for the founder and for the fund what are like all these different things And they came in and worked with us and then ended up being the first check into the fund. It just, it instills this level of confidence, like right out of the gate, especially for a new model, first time fund managers. So that Kaufman thing was really, really, really big. And the fact that after all that diligence and working with us, they actually also wrote the first check. It just gave us confidence, but also gave other people confidence in us as we embarked on the fundraising process. And then lastly, um, just kind of not directly, um, like some small conversations, but also uh, Bryce, who had, he was kind of the, the, the father of uh, revenue-based, profit-based um, financing in the VC space. And so we learned a lot from, you know, what he had built as well. And so, um, yeah, just a lot of people that, that were around us to, to help us get this thing off the ground. What was the fundraising process like for you and how long did it take you guys from the time you got your first check until you announced to the world that you had raised the $50 million fund? So that story is a bit, uh, actually has two stages to it. We started fundraising back in late 2019, actually. And the goal was for us to come take the Kaufman check and take that into 2020 and have our first closing of $10 million and kind of announce everything at the end of March. And we were close. We, we were several million dollars in. We had closed Kaufman and we were about to have a really big dinner at the end of March. And on March 15th was when the world shut down. So we lost a bunch of our investors like on the spot, you know, the economy crashed people started losing their jobs a lot of the people that we had closed were entrepreneurs or in like the music entertainment space you know touring stopped so it was just like everything just shut down and we pretty much lost 
all of that money except for Kaufman. And so, and for us, we also didn't want to be out asking people for money when the entire country was like, people were dying and people were losing their jobs. And so we decided just to stop. It was like, this isn't a good time. Like a lot of our fundraising, we were doing in person. We were hosting these um, kind of private dinners at the gathering spot to pitch people. Uh, And it was working really, really well for us. And so like our investment strategy had kind of died out because we couldn't go outside anymore. And so we just stopped everything. And we did, we went back to what we do best. It was like black founders were hurting. And so we stopped fundraising and we went and got $50,000 between our own money. And then Color of Change came in with a check as well. And we hosted a $50,000 pitch competition called Pivot and Pitch, where we were investing in companies that had been affected by COVID. And so we just went right back to community work and we started, you know, jumping on calls with founders and advising and helping them pivot through the pandemic. Our goal was to come back up in the summer and start fundraising again in June, July. And then we all know what happened in, you know, late May, early June was when the video resurfaced of George Floyd's murder. And that's when everything kind of changed. So right at the time that we were coming back out to fundraise again, world was set on fire basically with the longest pandemic in this country, which was like racism. And so that really kicked us off. And I think a lot of black fund managers would, would say the same thing that have just closed out funds in that, you know, George Floyd's murder and all the money that was kind of promised and allocated um, because of the unrest due to that being caught on camera, it really was a spark. And so one of the main things that I like to talk about during our fundraising period is the fact that we stuck to our guns. And when I say stuck to our guns, we, we went through a lot of cycles where people told us that we should not just invest in Black people. And so by us sticking to that, we ended up being on the, the top of like everyone's radar that was throwing all this cash around for building up the Black economic engine. And it was because if you think about who was investing in black people at the time, we were the only people that were like a hundred percent, we are investing in black people. The only reason that we raised so slow is because once we got into these doors, we then had to get them comfortable with this brand new model. But we also knew that our model was really important to our vision and to our community and what we wanted to build. And so we stuck to our guns there as well. And we ended up meeting with hundreds and hundreds of potential LPs. And we raised in that second fundraising period that started in like early July, late June. And we ran that and fully closed or oversubscribed the 50 million. We actually hit 52, oversubscribed the 50 million and closed that out in May of this year. So less than 12 months on that second go round that we were out fundraising, that we raised the rest of the fund. And so, man, it was a long process, but I know it typically takes people a lot longer, around 18 to 24 months to, to raise a fund. And so the fact that we were able to do it in less than 12 months, focusing solely on Black entrepreneurs and doing it with a brand new model that no one had ever seen before that we actually built, um, I think is a huge win for our team and it shows kind of the, the diligence that we had behind closed doors, not just from the partners, but also from, from Rachel and Elliot and Shelby and Tammy and all the people that are on the Collab Capital team with us. 
first, I just want to say congratulations to you and the whole team for weathering the storm that was 2020 and successfully oversubscribing your $50 million fund. So that's an amazing accomplishment. Congratulations. And then also, I really just want to commend you and your team for never wavering on your support for Black communities, Black founders, Black investors. I think that the ability to really stay true to your mission, despite other people telling you, oh, you shouldn't do it this way. It's really incredible to see how you guys have continued through the pandemic, through the unrest of 2020, to continue supporting Black founders and finding new ways to do that. I think more investors should not just invest in Black companies, but really support the communities and the people that work at these companies as well. How has your new space agreement impacted the way that you guys look for companies, the type of diligence that you conduct? And I'm curious if there are any unique trends that you're seeing right now in the Atlanta tech ecosystem that you're keeping an eye on. Atlanta's different, but one thing I highlight is that we have awesome founders here, but man, it's awesome black founders everywhere. Under every city you go into, every rock you you overturn, right? There are black founders building awesome things all around this country. We just so happen to be in a place that's you know fifty percent black, and around around half of the investments we've made thus far have been from Atlanta. But we've also made investments on the West Coast. We've made investments in Miami, D.C. About to make an investment out of Mississippi. And one of the reasons we we can do that is that we look at every single application that comes through our portal. Our deal flow is very heavy at the moment, but it's the only way you give people a fair chance, right? And it's the only way, because even as a Black investor, there are ways to show bias, right? And so we read every application that comes through the site. When those applications come in, um, we are still venture capitalists, right? And so we are, even though we have this model to take advantage of different opportunities, every investment we make, we're shooting for the moon, right? So we are making investments that we believe can at least return 10X back to us. Like when you read our investment memos, there's no small changing, like we are looking for big hits. But what we also know as an industry, (laughs) like these aren't things that we just made up. We also know that the majority of these companies, even though we think they're, you know, hot stuff coming in as investors, the majority of companies we invest in aren't going to make it to that stage. And so what we've done is we've built a tool, like I mentioned earlier, to just capture the ones that may only be a $20, $30 million company versus a unicorn. Um, But when it comes to our investment process, we are still trying to swing for the fences. And so we are looking for really, really dope teams. We're early stage investors. So a lot of what we're investing in is the people. And so we're looking for And I think one of the things that the way I look at team is I look at distance travel. And I I talk about this a lot when I'm talking to some of my white peers that are trying to figure out how to find more, how to source more, you know, black companies for their funds as investors. And one of the things that they don't look at that I, that I love to talk about is the distance travel. And so if I get a founder that, you know, went to Stanford, um, you know, no student loans, just that kind of has had, I won't say an easy road, but, you know, if they're on the same page with the founder, that's a single mom that grew up in a, in a town where there's not a lot of technology, 
and she's not technical and she had to figure out how to get a product built and has basically moved mountains to get to this same spot where someone is like that's the type of founder I want to invest in but that's the type of founder that is typically ignored but those are the type of founders that when you put the right resources and the right knowledge base around them and give them the tools that they've never had like that's when you know they can do great things and so that's like I, I dig deep into like a founder's background and what they've accomplished and what they've gone through and then after that I also dig into their ethos because those are typically the founders that are going to continue the legacy of what we're building at Collab. Like we want to invest in founders that as we help them along their journey to go create wealth for them and their families, that it doesn't stop there, that they're going to go back into the community just like we have done. And so we also talk about their ethos and their why, like, why is it important for you to be successful? You know, what are your plans? And so we go deep into that stuff as well. And then everything else diligence wise the reason I focus on that stuff, because everything else is very similar, right? We're looking for, did you build a product? Can you get it out and get a couple people to, to pay for it? Can we help you scale that? Do we have the right networks and resources to help your business? And so we go through the same diligence as, you know, any other investor, but we also add some of those other things on top of it. And you really have to do those things now because it's, such, as I mentioned earlier, there's so many great investments um, to make that have Black founders that you have to start finding ways to dwindle it down. And one of the ways that we do that is by the ethos of that founder or those founders. I love that you mentioned looking at the ethos of a founder and what's really driving them to be successful, because it's very clear from the work that you're doing at Collab Capital, as well as just in the tech ecosystem in Atlanta, that your ethos is at the center of everything you do. And that ethos has probably taken some time to develop. So I'm curious, what lessons you would want to give to future game changers, any advice that you have for people who, you know, have an idea, but they're not sure how to execute, or they don't know where to start. What lessons did you learn along the way that you would want to impart on the next generation of investors with game-changing ideas? Oh, man, I think one of the the biggest lessons that I learned, especially for early stage founders, they're getting like angel checks and they're coming into like accelerators and things of that nature. Like investors are not founders. A lot of early stage investors will come in and they'll say, oh no, like I'm, I'm right in line with you as a founder. Like they are investors, right? You cannot muddy the waters with that. Like when I write a check, I don't care how early it is. I will never tell a founder that, hey, I'm kind of like you. I'm kind of like a founder. Like first off, I'm not putting the time in. And so, you know, I did that a lot with my early stage investors where I thought we were all on the same page, you know, it was sold this dream that, hey, we're, we're all on the same team and we're all, I'm just like you as a founder. And so that, that was one of the lessons that I learned. I'll say another lesson, confidence is very high up on the list when it comes to being successful. And I think a lot of us have like this imposter syndrome. I still deal with it to this day. And so, you know, one of the things that I like to do is just you know, set small tasks for yourself to build up confidence. Because a lot of times what happens is we, we equate success with, can you go out and raise that, that seed round, right? And really it should be, can I get the app built? Like, can I get something that's, that's, that works? Like, that is a huge accomplishment. Can I get the first person to pilot it? Like, these are all smaller accomplishments. 
that we have to focus on and build up that confidence to push past the imposter syndrome. Just know that you have enough in you to do whatever the hell you want to do. We all have gaps and disparities and you have to use your brilliance to go fill that gap. Go find another person. Like you don't have to be great at everything. I just want all my black founders like or fund managers, you know, first time fund managers, whatever it is that you're embarking on, just know that you're enough. I think it's something that I needed to hear a lot of people listening to this. I think it's something that we all can be reminded of, that we do have unique strengths that make us capable of accomplishing our goals and to work on becoming really confident in those areas and then finding people around us to support us and complement the areas that we feel like we need more support in. So I think that's such an amazing piece of advice, such an amazing way to end this conversation. If there's any last words that you would want to give to our listeners, please feel free. But it's been so amazing to have you here today, Barry. So thank you again. Thank you for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Always good to have these conversations and just talk about how we can help uplift and, and build our community one brick at a time. So thank you for having these conversations and bringing this to your audience. And that's it for today's episode of Harlem Capital's More Equity Podcast Game Changer Series. Make sure to check out the rest of the episodes on Spotify or Apple Music. And to stay up to date for all things Harlem Capital, you can follow the team on Twitter and subscribe to our newsletter. This is your host, Raquel Scott, and that's a wrap for today.